Well, now, good and gracious God, in these moments, please let the words of my mouth and the meditations and prayers and uh, spirit thoughts today from everyone in this room be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, my brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he died, Jesus spoke words as he hung from the cross. Seven expressions are attributed to Jesus during his crucifixion. And so in these weeks uh, leading up to and including Easter Sunday, we're sitting beneath the cross and listening together to love's last words. But there wasn't just one cross, you know. There were three. All four Gospels do record that piece of information. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in describing the crucifixion of Jesus, report that it was a group execution. The Son of God was given not even the distinction of a solo martyrdom. He becomes a last-minute addition to someone else's crucifixion. According to Matthew and Mark, the men on either side of him are thieves. Luke actually doesn't specify. He just calls them criminals. So if you want to, you can imagine them as tax evaders, robbers, revolutionaries. And here is Jesus keeping the same kind of company as always, embodying again the words of Isaiah 53. He was counted among the sinners. Whatever their crimes, these two, much like our country today, are divided over Jesus. One of them joins the crowd in taunting Jesus. Maybe we should cut him a little slack. He's just been made to walk from death row to the place of execution. He is in gruesome pain. There's panic in his throat. He, he knows this is it. And maybe, though we don't know, but maybe for a second he lets himself feel a glimmer of hope that this so-called Messiah next to him might just pull something off. But no, clearly this all-but-dead neighbor next to him will not be offering any kind of rescue today. So he screams bitter words at the dying Christ. Matthew and Mark say both bandits railed against him, but Luke gives a different account. Maybe he alone is standing near enough to hear the other condemned man speak. And so according to Luke, from that far cross, the man tells his compatriot to pipe down. Don't you fear God, he said? We're here getting what we deserve, but not him. This man's done nothing wrong. Even on the cross, Jesus is surrounded by controversy, railed against from one side and defended from the other. Well, then the dying man on the far cross turns his head and whispers, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think it's worth noting that in all the gospel stories about Jesus of Nazareth, all the encounters he had with other people, 
and the worship services and parties he attended, as well as the many, many private moments he shared with his disciples, in not one of these stories is recorded that anyone ever called him by his own name, Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? They called him Sir, Teacher, Master. A very few called him Jesus, Son of David. But in all his adulthood, as recorded in the Gospels, writers, no one addresses him simply by the name Mary gave to him at his birth. No one, that is, until the last and loneliest hour. Jesus, remember me. And this is no flippant request. Hey, Padre, put in a good word for me at the pearly gates. No. Maybe in his dying hour, in the deepest places inside of him, this man recognizes that the sign over Jesus' head, King of the Jews, is somehow true. Jesus, remember me. More than 100 years ago, during World War I, in October of 1915, a woman sat in a prison cell in the German-occupied city of Brussels, Belgium. Her name was Edith Cavell, a British nurse. She was awaiting her execution by a German firing squad for helping some 200 wounded British soldiers escape to safety. And she was to be shot at dawn the following morning. And sitting next to her and praying with her in that prison cell was a British chaplain who later described how just hours before her death, Edith Cavell asked him to recite with her the words of a beloved hymn. Some of you will recognize it. We heard a gorgeous arrangement of this hymn just last night in this very room. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail, and comforts flee in life and in death, oh Lord, abide with me. It's interesting to me that this condemned man on the cross requests nothing as ambitious as abide with me, be with me. Just simply, Jesus, think of me, will you, when you come into your kingdom? Why don't we get just a little closer to this man? Does he look at like, like anyone we might know? Friends, he looks like everyone we know because his face is the face of someone at the brink of death. And that is a place we all will be eventually. Who can say what's going through his mind, this, this criminal, as, as he stands at the brink? Have you ever been with someone who's about to die? I remember sitting with my friend, Ruth Ann, just hours before her passing. Ruth Ann taught New Testament to seminary students in Waco until she was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And the night she died... I sat with her a while, and during our visit, I said, Ruth Ann, you're standing at the gate. What does it feel like to you in this moment? And though she'd been barely coherent for days, now her eyes were alert, and her fingers were sort of drumming on her chest. She reminded me of someone who was waiting for a train. And she said, oh, Julie, 
It's quite something, really, to be this close. But this criminal on the cross doesn't just remind us of our own dying, does he? He reminds us also of the many forms of failure we experience during our living. He's a man who's clearly wasted his potential. Whatever dreams he had as a boy or as a young man have now come to an end. And he hopes his parents had for him, all shattered now, lost. All that's left for him is this nightmare of pain and guilt and very soon the darkness of death. He has wrecked his life and now it's over. Can you picture a pair of eyes any emptier of hope or in more desperate need than this beggar at the point of his death? And now, can you recognize those eyes as yours and mine? What else can any of us say but, Jesus, remember me? This is where every honest conversation with Christ begins, with an acknowledgement of our need. Jesus, remember me. I'm addicted and I can't seem to break free. Jesus, remember me. My kids are in trouble. Remember me. My marriage is failing. Remember me. I'm grieving. Jesus, remember me. I'm so tired of pretending, so tired of running, of crying, so very tired of dying. Remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And who knows, as he speaks these words, if he wonders if Jesus has even heard him, when much to his astonishment, I'm sure, the great face turns. And we hear the Son of God say to the man who's asking merely to be kindly thought of, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the very presence of God, I'm going to stand by you. I'm going there. I've got the key. I know the way. And today, you will be with me. Oh, friends. As Jesus speaks these words to the sinner on the cross and to us, his ruined hand reaches for the paradise gate and swings it open. Now, some say that this episode on the cross is proof that when we die, we go directly to heaven. Of course, elsewhere in this gospel and in the book of Acts, Luke portrays the life, uh, life after death for a believer in terms of a future resurrection. So that is a little confusing, but that's okay. Because in this conversation between Jesus and the man beside him, Luke is not trying to give us a chronology or a geography of what happens after death. What Luke is doing here is simply pointing to love's promise that death is not the end for people who trust in God. But here's the thing. And maybe you experience this to be true for yourself. For many of us, the word we're straining to hear pertains not to Christ's companionship upon our death as much as our desperate need for it now, in the middle of a fractured, sometimes heartbreaking life. This past week in the Rio Grande Valley along the U.S.-Mexico border was a profoundly moving experience for me, deeply troubling in places, inspiring in others, as Chelsea shared earlier. 
Last Monday night, our group met with a public defender from the federal courthouse in McAllen, which, since the announcement of our government's zero-tolerance policy for those entering the country without authorization, now prosecutes some 200 cases per day, five days a week. Most traumatizing for everyone, of course, has been the practice of separating children from their parents. And because officials failed to track many of the children, especially in the early days of separation, the whereabouts of a number of children are still unknown. And the public defender down there, one of 17, a Christ follower who belongs to a Methodist church there in McAllen, wept as she described the panic and agony of parents who woke up in the mornings with their children by their side in the detention center and upon returning from their court appearance learned that their children, including infants and toddlers, had been put on planes or trains or buses and sent to other cities around the country. And the lawyer, with tears streaming down her face, said, I fight for these people. I plead their cases with all my might. And sometimes, she said, at the end of the day, all I know to say to them is simply, God is with you. Dios está contigo. Remember me, Jesus, says the man on the cross. Today, you will be with me, says the Son of God. And in an instant, with one welcoming word, Christ swings wide the gate, not just to some far-off tomorrow, but also for your comfort and mine in this hour to give us the amazing grace and the faithful company of one who does indeed remember us, who sees us, and who gives us so much more than we could have asked for or imagined. And so, Jesus, remember us today and tomorrow and the next day until you swing open the gate and we see your bright face and know that we are home. In your name we pray. Amen. Sisters and brothers, the love of God is the one love that reaches anywhere to anyone at any moment, even now. And so in the silence and stillness of these moments, the Spirit invites us. We come like the guilty, claiming nothing, needing everything. We come like beggars, not maligning anyone else who needs to come. Most of all, to our utter amazement, we come like friends. Friends who, by some great miracle, have been made welcome here by the very Son of God. And so I invite you now to sit in that news, to sit with that promise as the Spirit leads us.